Well, we are in a series uh, through um, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, known as Philippians, and uh, the title of that series is Embrace Joy. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will you remain standing and let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this morning for the privilege of being here together in this place. We thank you for gifting us with this building and this campus. And uh, Lord, we, we just desire that we would be good stewards of all of it. Uh, and Lord, we pray this morning that um, you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds, uh, that we would understand what your spirit is trying to say to us today. Lord, I affirm and celebrate the fact that uh, you, God, are able to do what no one else can do, and that is take one message and apply it appropriately to the heart of every listener. So, Lord, you know what you want to say to each of us today. I pray that your spirit would be free this morning to do that. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, um, with these four verses, Paul issues three commands and a promise. So that provides a little bit of the outline. You know, something that I've observed, um, noticed among Christians these days is that when things are going really well, uh, a common expression is, God is good. And uh, you'll hear that a lot. I've also observed that when things aren't going quite so well, we're quite a, quite a bit less likely to hear that expression. And uh, there are many, many things that are not going well uh, in America today, right? Uh, in Olympia today, uh, in our homes today. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought with it social distancing and isolation, loneliness, heightened conflict in marriages and families. Uh, marital separation and divorce, drug and alcohol abuse, increased rates of uh, various mental health problems, increased rates of suicide, businesses closing, loss of employment, financial crises, increased homelessness. And I could go on, couldn't I? I mean, add uh, to that the, the increased racial tension in our nation today. Um, protests that escalate into riots. Uh, and uh, most often fanned by people behind the scenes that are encouraging and organizing and financing the unmitigated destruction. Add to that the, the social and political conflict surrounding this year's very divisive presidential election season with its profound implications for the future of our nation. And I could keep going again, and each of us could contribute to that growing list and then add the everyday garden variety problems of our personal lives. How's it all working for you? How's it going? No wonder many of us are feeling stressed, we're feeling anxious, overwhelmed, and perhaps depressed. And then some smart aleck comes along and speaks into our anxiety, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Oh, wait. That was the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? That is the word of God, isn't it? You know, the believers in first century Philippi were experiencing conflicts of their own. There was conflict within the church. We've been sensing hints of that throughout this letter. We saw it in full bloom last week, the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche that was threatening to infect the entire church. They were also experiencing conflict from outside the church as persecution was beginning to happen against Christians in that city. And they, as a church, were also very concerned about Paul's imprisonment and the prospect of his death by execution at the hands of the Romans. And it is to them that this was first addressed. It's a word to the entire church. And will you please notice with me that Paul qualifies the command. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. Rejoice because your circumstances are telling you momentarily that God is good. He doesn't say rejoice in spite of your circumstances. He says instead rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Christ followers down through the centuries have embraced the the joy in, of Christ in the face of even the most dire circumstances. Why? Because our joy is not grounded in our circumstances. Our joy is grounded in the faithfulness and the unrelenting love of our sovereign heavenly Father. In the Lord is the ground of our rejoicing and always then ought to describe the extent of our rejoicing. Paul says, get ready because I'm going to keep on saying it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Are you rejoicing? That characterize your life? Do you recall what Paul said as he contemplated the prospect of his own departure to be with Jesus in in chapter 2 of this letter. He said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and, what? Rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and, what? Rejoice with me. Rejoice, Christians. The prophet Habakkuk, whose name sounds like a sneeze to me. The prophet Habakkuk said by faith, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, the call to all of us is not to ground our joy, our happiness, our sense of well-being in our circumstances, but in the faithfulness of God. What Habakkuk is describing here in an agrarian society is total meltdown. 
It's total loss. It's total failure of, of that which you are counting upon for your livelihood, for your sustenance. In Luke 10, Jesus commissioned 72 of his disciples to embark on what would kind of be their first missionary foray. And they they returned all excited because they had discovered along the way that even the demons were subject to them. They were had been given authority over demons. And Jesus affirmed their enthusiasm, but then he added, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, Jesus wanted them, and he wants us today, to understand that not even the ability to exercise spiritual power nor any measure of success in ministry is a worthy ultimate basis for our joy, but only that we are in him, that our names are written in heaven in the Lamb's book of life, that we have a reservation to feast at the Lord's table. David wrote in Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, you you and I can experience joy even in the midst of intensely difficult circumstances like a pandemic, like a financial meltdown, like broken relationships, like conflict in our marriages or families, like the prospect of another lengthy deployment on a foreign battlefield, like political conflict that threatens to tear our nation apart when we rest our hope and our confidence in the Lord who is in sovereign control of our circumstances, who is in sovereign control of all of history, who is working all of it together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. There's a second command in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word translated reasonableness contains the idea of conformity to the law, but it leans away from the letter of the law to fairness by relaxing overtly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. You know, if you're a hard and fast rules person, kind of a black and white person, this command may make you somewhat uncomfortable. Like Clint Eastwood, you'll say, I tried being reasonable. I didn't like it. But think of that moment with me when you're pulled over by a police officer for a moving violation and you know that you are stone cold guilty. But the officer realizes that the speed limit sign was hidden from clear view by an overgrown shrub or senses that you may have had a bad day and he or she could make it even worse. But instead of citing you, he lets you off with a warning and says, pay closer attention to your rate of speed. Have a nice day. William Barclay said that a man has the quality of reasonableness if he knows when not to apply the strict letter of the law when to relax justice and introduce mercy. Mercy. 
Not surprising then that among the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is this, that an overseer must not be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. And notice that the the qualification of gentleness is set in between and, and over against being violent and being quarrelsome. Paul similarly urged Titus regarding the church in Crete, of which Titus was the pastor, to remind them to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So this is the same word that, that's translated reasonable in Philippians chapter 4. Gentleness, reasonableness. And notice here in Titus 3 too that the call to gentleness is again contrasted with quarreling. And it's equated with showing courtesy. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote that the wisdom from above is gentle, reasonable. And then Paul adds at the close of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. See, you and I don't need to be harsh. We don't need to click our tongues or shake our fingers or shake our heads at people, and be self-appointed judges and juries. The Lord is coming. He's at the gate. And when he comes, he's going to set things right. You and I don't have to do that. We're called in the midst of life, as we find it here in this veil of tears, to be models of reasonableness and gentleness, to establish reputations in the church and in our community as fair-minded and reasonable people. In verse 6, there's a third command, and it has two parts. Let's begin with the first one. Do not be anxious about anything. And Paul's going to equate anxiety in this section with an absence of an experience of the peace that God desires to give us. But before we get into that, I want to ask the question whether it's possible that a Christian might experience a good kind of anxiousness that that is appropriate in its focus. And we don't actually have to look very far to find an answer. Do you remember how Paul described Timothy back in chapter 2? He said of Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And the word concerned here in chapter 2 as it's applied to Timothy is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 4, which is translated anxious. Timothy's concern for the Philippian believers wasn't just technical. It wasn't just academic. It wasn't just professional. On the contrary, it apparently elicited in him a visceral, emotional response. He was anxious, or we might say he experienced anxiety as he thought about the church in Philippi, as he thought about their circumstances, as he thought about the conflict within the church, the persecution coming from outside the church. Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians 12.25 when he taught the Corinthian believers about the ways that we in the church ought to relate to one another. You might recall that Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 uses the metaphor of a body to describe the church, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And there it is again. This word care in verse 25 is, is the same word that's translated anxious in Philippians 4. So that if we're living 
out the design of Christ for us as the church, then we each ought to be experiencing a sense of anxiousness or eager concern when it comes to looking out for one another's welfare, whether it's physical or material or emotional or spiritual, and providing care that's appropriate to the need. Because why? We are members of one body. Now let's return to Philippians 4.6 and realize that Paul is in fact speaking here to what today we would call anxiety. And he casts it as the condition of one who lacks peace because they lack confidence in God's faithful provision. We know that anxiety, when it's unchecked, can be disabling. In fact, this Greek word that's translated anxious in its negative sense literally means to be worried, to be distracted. Follow me now, to be drawn in opposite directions, to be divided into parts, to experience fragmentation, what is often described as falling apart or going to pieces. And people with anxiety can experience a range of physical and psychological symptoms, severe anxieties associated with breathing and respiratory problems, changes to the cardiovascular system, high blood pressure, heart failure, Impaired immune function, impaired digestive function, insomnia, sleep disorders, and and more. And those in turn often lead to things like depression and phobias, chronic pain, eating disorders, difficulties at school, at work, or in social situations, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts, suicidal actions. Paul says by the Holy Spirit, Do not be anxious about anything. It's a command. So let me ask you this morning, what what do you personally worry about? What's causing you anxiety today? What's stressing you out? What's distracting you and drawing you in different directions? The American poet Elizabeth Cheney is famous for her powerful little poem, the robin and the sparrow that she wrote in 1859. And it goes like this, said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, the robin and the sparrow. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, whatever's causing you anxiety today, your Heavenly Father already knows all about it. He anticipated it, and He's more than able to handle what you bring to Him, which brings us to the second half of the command in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Don't go to pieces, go to God. Don't go to pieces, go vertical. See, God's prescription for anxiety is prayer. Paul uses three important words here in verse 6. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer is the general word. It, it, it just describes all of our interaction, all of our communication with God. Supplication is a specific kind of prayer, a specific form of prayer, verbal, where we verbalize and we... Um, Communicate our requests to God. And sometimes we don't tell God everything, do we, that we think we need because of a lot of things. Maybe we're lazy or we think we're being selfish or we don't believe God's listening or that he even cares. I know that I don't. I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't talk to him about everything. I, I should. I'd worry a lot less. I'd stress a lot less. The Apostle Peter wrote, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And the word cast means what it sounds like. Just throw it at him. Just, <laughs> just let it rip. Throw it on him. Like you throw a coat on a rack, throw it on him. A more literal translation would be cast your anxieties upon him because you are the appropriate object of his anxiety, of his concern and of his care. To the degree that, that you and I are willing to let our requests be made known to him, to the extent that we are willing to release our anxieties to him, we will experience both his peace and his provision. So give it all to him. Tell him everything you need. He is a loving heavenly father. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. You're his child. He is anxious to care for you, to provide for you, to bless you. And Paul's third word is thanksgiving. Why is that so important? You might say, I, 
I do Thanksgiving about once a year and towards the end of November. But again, this is something that ought to be a constant in our life. Why is it so important? Because when I come to God and share my requests with Him, when I pour out my heart to Him, when I cast my anxieties on Him, I do so because I know, I know that that He really is good. And because He's good, I am glad. He is good and I don't deserve His goodness toward me. I give thanks because thanksgiving works humility in me and builds my confidence in Him. It's not demanding my rights. It's not insisting on His provision, trying to manipulate God to get what we want. It's coming before a loving Heavenly Father. So I adopt the attitude of gratitude for all that God has done, all that He is doing, and all that He will do. Finally, in verse 7, there's this promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is this peace that Paul is promising. I was on YouTube yesterday and just happened on to a title of a video that said, God's Prescription for Anxiety. And I went, that's what I'm preaching on. It was just a short little video. It was from John Piper. And he made a statement that, that hadn't ever dawned on me. You say, well, you're kind of dense, Jim, when you hear what it, what it was. Or maybe I hadn't thought of it exactly this way, but he said, look, the peace of God that Paul's talking about here in Philippians 4 is the peace that God himself experiences. It's his experience of peace that he wants to impart to us. He wants to deliver to us. He wants to give to us. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The the peace that that Paul's describing here in Romans 5, 1 is primarily what we would call positional peace. It speaks to our new status with God. It means literally a cessation of hostilities because God's wrath is, has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus, satisfied it, slaked it, all onto Jesus. The debt of our sin has been paid finally and in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the wrath of God is satisfied. The debt of our sin is satisfied We've been reconciled to God. We are justified by personal faith in Him. And as a result, we are at peace with Him. And literally, or or listen now, He is at peace with us. He is at peace with you. And sometimes we, we walk around, don't we, kind of feeling like God's a little ticked off? Or maybe a lot ticked off? 
pretty dissatisfied with us, pretty disappointed in our performance. God is at peace with us as much as we have been brought to peace with him. What Christ did satisfied the wrath of God. I hope you understand that this morning. But the peace of God he's describing in Philippians 4, 7 is a personal, experiential peace. He says that it surpasses all understanding. Jesus put it this way to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. There it is again. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace that God gives us as his children through Jesus Christ is not the kind of peace that the world offers. The world can't even begin to approximate this kind of peace. Why? Because it surpasses all understanding. It exceeds human reasoning. It exceeds the power of powers of our intellect. It, it settles down in our hearts. It defies our circumstances. And the world can't even begin to offer us that. Only God can. Only God can. And he does it to those who by faith in Christ belong to him. Notice what else this peace does. It guards our hearts and minds. I recently installed a malware app on my computer. And what does that do? It, it scans my computer's entire system and it roots out things that, that are harmful that shouldn't be there. And I think in a similar way, God's peace works that way. It, it, it stands like a sentinel over our hearts and our minds to protect us from thoughts and feelings and attitudes that take root in our hearts and minds that are displeasing to him and ultimately harmful to us. Let me close with this. The prophet Isaiah said of God, you will keep him, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You know, the, the New Testament Greek word for peace is a parallel word to the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. Shalom speaks to the experience of inner quietness and rest. It, it represents wholeness. It's what David referred to in Psalm 23 when he said to God, you restore my soul. You, you put me back together. And I titled this message, God's Wholeness for Your Whole Mess. Because that's what our lives are like apart from Him, right? Our lives are a hot mess. The peace that God works in His children is the antithesis of debilitating anxiety. He gives the gift of wholeness and rest to those whose lives are otherwise falling apart. That's the gift that he's waiting to give to you today. And if 
you're not a believer today, if, you, if you're not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the salvation of your soul, for the wholeness of your life, I'd invite you to just settle that today. Allow him to come in and transform you from the inside out. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. God can move down into the hot mess of your life and bring order and peace and rest. Maybe you are a believer today, and you're just not drawing on that peace that God would like to give you. I'd invite you to deal with that today as well. And, and, and begin trusting, begin casting your anxieties on him. Begin praying, letting all of your requests be, be, be made known to God, and then giving thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for peace. Thank you for rest. Thank you that you are making us whole that you are taking the chaos of our lives and renewing and restoring. Lord, I pray for the one today who is wrestling with whether to follow you, to trust you with their lives. I pray today that this would be the day that you would grant them the gift of faith that leads to life and to peace. Peace with you peace with themselves, peace with others, peace within. And I pray it in the name of the Prince of Peace, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.